Thanks, Krista. Good morning. Sometimes on Monday mornings, I look at the passage for Sunday and I think to myself, no thanks. <laughs> and I wonder if I skip a few verses or a passage, would anyone really notice? Um, no. But we don't, <laughs> we don't do that. And, but in all seriousness, I want to encourage you if, you, if the Lord is nudging you to teach his word, to, be, um, to go further into ministry, uh, to not let hard passages prevent you from doing that. He always leads us back to the gospel. So the Bible is a true story. From Genesis to Revelation, it's a story. It's God's story. History is his story. And the, the end, which is really the beginning of the story in Revelation, is a wedding. It's a marriage feast between Christ and his church. And if you have confessed your sins and asked the Lord Jesus to be your savior, that's you. You're not a guest at the, at the wedding, you're the bride. There's a wedding coming. Revelation 19 says, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Ephesians 5 says, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. A wedding is coming and the holy, spotless, perfect Christ is going to have a holy, spotless, perfect bride. And if that's us, your question should be, well, something's got to change. Something's got to happen for that to be true. And something did happen. God had to act. He had to take risks. He had to take on our spots and sins and stains and pay for all of that deserves, all the while maintaining perfect character. He would be the one to be the just and the justifier of all those who have faith in Jesus. He would make for himself a bride, and he's making us into that bride. The story ends with a wedding, and if we believe in him, we're going to be there. So we're going through the story of Ruth, and we're in chapter 3 now. The story continues. We've been talking about what love looks like, what real love looks like. We see it throughout the life of Ruth. She lived a life of consistent, selfless love. It's why Boaz in this in this passage today, calls her a worthy woman, a woman of noble character. But we've seen what love looks like so far. Love, true love, biblical love, is enduring. Love is courageous. Love is humble. Love is generous. And the title of the message today is that love is intentional and wise. And the main idea for the passage today is this. Love takes risks. Maintaining godly character. We see wisdom and intentionality in that. Love takes risks, as we see in today's passage. But all the while, true love maintains godly character. So we see first the plan of Naomi, and it was risky in verses 1 to 5. We see what Ruth does with that plan, the pronouncement of Ruth to Boaz, which is going to be marry me, also risky in verses 6 through 9. And then we see with the praise and the plan of Boaz in verses 10 through 13, how both of them maintain godly character, even in a potentially dangerous situation. 
So first, the plan of Naomi, and it's risky. Verses 1 through 5, we see how first what the goal of this plan is, and then what the plan itself is through the gutsy command that she gives to Ruth. We see the goal in the, in the first part, verses 1 through the first part of verse 2. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? So the goal is right there in the beginning. Naomi is seeking rest for Ruth, right? It is something that she prayed for for Ruth earlier, and now she's trying to find a way to get it for her. And I want to pause for a second and be reminded and talk a little bit about the fact that God wants rest for all of his people. Yes, the future rest, the rest that we're going to enter into, as it talks about in Hebrews, the rest of heaven that God has secured for all of his people, absolutely that rest, but also a rest here and now. When, when Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew, says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He wasn't talking about a future rest. He was saying right there, right now, right now in our lives, the kind of rest that God wants to give to us that we can have, and that's a kind of soul rest. Whether or not we're busy and we have just as many things on the calendar, we can still have the rest that Christ provides and gives to his people that's found in him. Do I always experience and have that rest? I don't. If you do all the time, I'd love to talk to you. But I find when I don't have that rest, it's because I'm doing what Jesus was addressing to the people he was talking to. They were so focused on trying to earn their own right standing before God and justify their existence and all of that with all the rules and laws the Pharisees were putting on them in addition to to, to Scripture. And he's saying that's not where rest is found. Rest is found in Christ. And he wants to give us that rest. So maybe if nothing else today from the passage and in talking about rest, maybe it's a time for you to talk to the Lord about about rest and asking him to receive his rest, soul rest, if it's something you're not experiencing. Ruth gave up her opportunity, it seemed, to have the rest that Naomi prayed for for her. When Ruth committed to going with Naomi, where you lodge, I will lodge, where where your people will be my people, and all of that and that commitment, she was giving up a life of security and of rest in order to care for Naomi. She was putting herself into a life of poverty and vulnerability in a dangerous society and following after Naomi. But now, Naomi sees an opportunity for Ruth to have a kind of settled security, to have rest. There was an opportunity here for her to marry Boaz. And not just that, not just marry Boaz, a man that Naomi knew, a close relative of hers, but someone who would carry on the family line of the Ephrathites who would carry on the line of Malon, Ruth's deceased husband. But Naomi knows Ruth doesn't have a brother with her. Ruth doesn't have her father who's back in Moab. And so she decided to take on that role herself and try to arrange this marriage for Ruth. And so she comes up with a risky plan. And we see that plan in the form of her gutsy command in verses 2 to 5, the last part of verse 2 to verse 5. Let's look at it again. 
See, he, Boaz, is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So, what's the plan here? Boaz is an important person, a prominent person, right? He's a boss, landowner. He's always around people. And Naomi's trying to think of a way, how can Ruth get into a situation where she can propose marriage to him when he's not surrounded by people? How can she do it? And she comes up with this plan. Is it the best plan? Uh, I don't know. But it's what she comes up with. And it was risky. It was risky. A lot could have gone wrong. What could have gone wrong? First of all, she could have been seen by some of the other workers that were there when she went that night. And I don't know what excuse she could have thought to come up with. She could have been rejected by Boaz with this marriage proposal. And then maybe worst case scenario, in this vulnerable situation there in the late night with just Boaz, she could have been abused. She was aware of these possibilities. Naomi was aware of these possibilities. But they had trust in Boaz. They, had, they were banking on his character. Ruth had known Boaz not a very long time, maybe three to four months, the end of the barley harvest. Did they have lunch every day like they did on the first day? We're not sure. Did she go to glean every day other than the Sabbath? We're not sure, but probably. Three to four months of getting to know him, of knowing his character of this man. Naomi had known Boaz much longer than Ruth had, a close relative of hers before she left to go to Moab. But there was trust put in the character of Boaz. When it came to rejection, which he could have done, now she was in a situation, just the two of them, where if she was rejected, it's not in front of a crowd of people. Only the two of them and Naomi needed to know about it. What about if she was seen by others? Well, another risky potential option here, but she went at night. She went with a cloak on, this term for a long jacket, less likely to be seen. So yes, it was risky. It was an audacious plan. Let me review it for you in a couple sentences. She told her, go to the threshing floor where Boaz is going to be winnowing barley. That's when they would, it was the end of the, it was time to celebrate all of the, the, the harvest that they've had, all the sowing throughout the, the reaping months, and they would, they would throw up the, the barley in the air, and the chaff would be separated by the grain, or they would use big fans, and it was a time of a lot of celebration of enjoying what God had provided for them, and she tells them, go this night while he's doing that. Wait until he goes to lie down. Wait until he goes to sleep. Then walk over in front of him, uncover his feet, and lie down, curl up in front of him. And then wait, and he'll tell you what to do. <laughs> That's the plan. Any questions? <laughs> okay. I have a few. I have three questions. And I'm going to start with, hopefully, an easier one. And then the next two, we'll, we'll get there. We're going to do this together. Question number one. Why did Naomi tell Ruth to wait until Boaz had finished eating and drinking before giving this marriage proposal? 
I like the answer I saw in one of the commentaries. It was simply, men do better when they're full and not hungry. <laughs> and I thought, all right, I'm just going to go with that. And I thought, there's been multiple times where Anna has said to me when I'm hungry, do you know that you're less patient when you're hungry? And sometimes I'll say, no, I'm not, and that proves a point. Um, but there you go. So wait until he had finished eating and drinking. There was a lot of, there was thought, there was intentionality with this risky plan, the timing of it, when to do it, all of that. Secondly, second question, why did Naomi tell Ruth, wash yourself, anoint yourself, right? Take a shower, put on perfume, get dressed, all of that, if this was just a marriage request. So I have two answers to that. The first one, I noticed how there's one other place in scripture that uses very similar language of someone who washed their self, washed their self anointed themselves, and put on, same word, cloak. And it's actually used of David. It's used, it's used of David after his firstborn had died from Bathsheba. You know that story? It wasn't looking great for his son, firstborn, with Bathsheba, and he was praying for a week or more, two weeks, something like that, praying that the child would be okay. And he's praying and he's praying and he's fasting and he's grieving and he's just seeking the Lord for his, for his child to be okay. And the guards, when the, when the son dies, they're afraid to go tell David what had happened. Because if he's reacting this way now, what is he going to do when he finds out? And so they go and they tell him. And David sort of snaps out of it. And it says he anoints himself, washes himself, anoints himself, puts on his, his cloak. And essentially says to them, I've done, I've done the praying. I've done the seeking the Lord. I'll see him again. He won't see me. Sorry, I won't see him again here. But I'll, I'll see him in glory, essentially. He was... He was as best as he could in that moment, attempting to, to keep going. And maybe with Naomi giving this command to Ruth here after her husband had died not terribly long ago, maybe this was a push to next chapter of her life. That's one answer to it. Here's another one, a bit more simple, and I'm going to share some of my thoughts about it. Maybe it was simply the same reason that when you go on a date with someone, you try to look your best, <laughs> right? Maybe it's that simple. And I want to talk a little bit about attraction and the importance of attraction. And I'm, I want to talk to our single family for a second in this, because I don't have a lot to say to our married people on this topic right now. So how important is attraction when it comes to looking for someone for dating? And your, my response is not going to be a surprise, which is it's not the most important factor. Definitely not. But it can matter to some and to some more than others. It's definitely not the most important factor. But it can matter to some and to some more than others. So let's talk about that. It's not the most important factor. So then what are some of the most important factors? Well, the character of the person. Are they loyal? Are they consistent? Are they hardworking? What about their faith? Is it real? Is it something they just said they have? Or does it show up in their life? Does it show up in their lifestyle and the decisions that they make? Are they someone that you can respect and learn from? Do they share the same deep longings and values as you? Are they walking towards God or not, and will they help you do that as well? Will they be the kind of parent, Lord willing, that you would want parenting your kids? Like These are the kinds of questions that are definitely more important than, am I simply attracted to this person?
Those matter more, by a lot. And in fact, when scripture talks about attraction, it will often give us a warning. I thought before even I quote a verse here, I was thinking of when David was chosen as king, his father at first didn't even bring him out there because he was thinking about appearance. He was thinking about age and he was thinking about appearance of his other, of his other sons. And Samuel says, the Lord says through Samuel, that the Lord doesn't look at the external like we do. <laughs> he looks at the heart. Proverbs 31 says, charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. The Bible says, all flesh is like grass, the grass withers and the flower fades. And all of that is true. <laughs> and all of that is important. And all of that is far and above the question of attraction. But there was a friend in seminary that said this. He would say, the grass withers and the flower fades, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't mow the yard. <laughs> and he was saying in a, in, a, in a, you know, joking kind of way, there's nothing wrong with putting your best foot forward. There's nothing wrong with getting ready and trying to impress Boaz that night. So I have a few thoughts here. One is, with the question of attraction, if you have a list of things like they have to have this color hair, they have to have this color eyes, they have to have this, this height, my advice is throw that list away. <laughs> because attraction can grow as you get to know the person, the real person. It can grow, or maybe it doesn't. But you find out as you get to know them. One other thought in the form of a story, if this, if this, if this topic um, is simply frustrating and you don't want to think about it and you don't want to talk about it because I remember that very well. I want to share a quick story again in seminary. I had a friend in our friend group that would often say things like, the girls aren't attracted to me. The girls are not interested in me. And one time one of my friends said to him, and it really stuck, I, I know it stuck with him and it stuck with the rest of us. He said, brother, you don't need the girls, plural, to be attracted to you. <laughs> you don't need the girls, plural, to look at you that way. You're looking for one. <laughs> you don't have to impress everybody. If this area of life, again, is something that is a challenge and waiting can be such a challenge, I want to remind you of one truth which is this, God is not holding out on you. As the song that we sang, God works for our glory, for his, no, nah, nah. for his glory. I was testing you, for his glory and for our good. Psalm 84 says, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Let's follow him and trust him with every aspect of our life, of our lives, including the romantic area of life. The truth is, life as a single person can be really great and really challenging. Life as a married person can be really great and really challenging. And all of us are waiting for the groom that our hearts have been longing for from the beginning. And that's Jesus. So that's question number two. <laughs> Why did Naomi tell Ruth, take the shower, put on perfume if it's just a marriage request? Then question number three is this. Did more than a marriage proposal happen that night? 
I ask that because the language that Naomi used in just telling Ruth what to do is charged with sexual language all over the place. In the commentary of Loving Life, he points out, and I underline some of the words here, of some of these words and phrases that are sexually charged. Feet can be a euphemism, a Hebrew euphemism, for the male sexual organ. Uncover your nakedness is a way of saying sexual intercourse. Lie down is another metaphor for sexual intercourse. Threshing floor is the potential place for forbidden sex to happen. And no, the word no, Adam and Eve knew each other, can be a euphemism for sexual intercourse. So, with this kind of language and with the kind of atmosphere, was this more than a marriage proposal? Well, to answer the question, let's get back to the story and find out. Love takes risks. Maintaining godly character, that should give away part of the answer. We see the plan of Naomi, it's risky. We see next what Ruth does about it in verses 6 through 9. The pronouncement of Ruth to Boaz, and again, it's risky. Verses 6 through 7, we set the scene. And in verses 8 through 9, we're going to look at the straightforward command that Ruth gave to Boaz. Let's set the scene, verses 6 through 7. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. So here's the scene. Boaz, after the long day of celebration of winnowing the barley, he goes to sleep. And he goes to sleep in front of one of the heaps of grain. And the best reason I could find that, why did he do that? Why did he sleep in the, you know, in the barn in front of the heap of grain? Was to protect it, apparently. Because maybe people would come in and steal all that hard work that they had been doing. So he falls asleep in front of the grain. And then Ruth tiptoes over, does what Naomi told her to do, lifts up the front of his cloak, and curls up by his feet. What happens next? We see it in verses 8 through 9, a straightforward command by Ruth. At midnight, the man, Boaz, was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? <laughs> and she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So it's midnight. Boaz had probably been asleep for a few hours because apparently people used to go to bed when the sun went down during that time. Kind of a crazy thought. And so it's midnight, probably asleep a few hours. He rolls over and he notices there's a woman in front of him at his feet. Whoa, who are you? He asks her. It's dark, right? Any light would have been candlelit. He says, who are you? Now, I want to address something for a second. He he doesn't know who she is because it's dark and he's startled and he just woke up. That's why he doesn't know. He's not, Boaz is not wasted here, okay? We know it by the conversation that they have that comes up. He's not drunk. It's said that he ate and he drank and his heart was merry, right? And he went to sleep. And there's something, again, not, not a surprise here, I hope. The Bible's very clear Alcohol is a gift, a gift from God. Amen. Praise the Lord. Psalm 104. Wine makes the heart glad. But I have to say something just, I hope, very clear. Because we live in a culture where getting drunk is totally fine as long as you're not hurting anybody, you're not driving, you're, then it's totally fine. 
And I wonder at times in conversations in Terra, have, have we been clear about what the Bible teaches about this? It's very clear. Alcohol is a gift. And at the same time, getting drunk is a sin. Somewhere there's a line between your heart is merry and now your judgment's impaired and you're intoxicated. And knowing where that line is, because it says in Galatians 5, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you as I have warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. A practice of those things, including drunkenness, not fighting that sin, repeating to fall, falling into that, would be a reason to be worried that you're one of the people he's talking about that will not inherit the kingdom of God. Is the Spirit of God convicting you of that if that's something that you fall into? Ephesians 5 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. He tells us, alcohol's a gift, drunkenness is sin. And if that's a conversation or confession or something to deal with, it's something we should be able to do together and have those conversations. Boaz is not drunk here. <laughs> it's clear by the conversation. He's very much awake and sober-minded. He'll make his intentions clear, but first, Ruth will. She says to him, spread your wings over your servant. What is she saying here? She's combining an earlier statement from Boaz with a well-known ancient Near Eastern phrase that has to do with marriage proposal. What do I mean by combining something he said earlier? Earlier, Boaz said to Ruth, you have come to take refuge under the shelter of God's wings. Seeing her faith and her acts of commitment and love to Naomi and going to Bethlehem, he says that of her. You've taken shelter under God's wings. And now Ruth is going to say to Boaz, essentially, be the answer to your own prayer in some way. You can do something about that. Spread the wings, your wings over your servant. It sounds very similar to the, to the phrase, spread the corner of your garment. An ancient Near Eastern phrase that has to do with a marriage proposal, it says, in the word biblical commentary. A man would spread the hem of his garment over his future wife. And it's not just found that in cultural evidence for that. There's also in Ezekiel 16 some biblical support for this idea that it's a marriage proposal. God often speaks of his people as his bride. As, he, as we talked about in the beginning, the very end of the story. But throughout the story, when he called nation to the nation of Israel to know him and to represent him, he refers to them often as his spouse, as his wife. Ezekiel 16 the Lord says about Israel, When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over your nakedness and covered you. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. It's a marriage proposal. Notice how Ruth does it. It's actually more than a proposal and a or a request. Ruth essentially says, marry me. So notice the difference between what Naomi told Ruth to do and what Ruth does. Naomi told Ruth, when you curl up in front of his feet, 
wait and he'll tell you what to do. But is that what Ruth does? No. She doesn't wait for Boaz to say anything. She speaks to him and lets her intentions be known. She removes any ambiguity here when she says, spread your wings over your servant. She's saying, marry me. Marry me. And she says that right after when he says, who are you? And she says, I am Ruth, your servant, your maidservant. A term that has to do with eligibility for marriage and also submissiveness. Notice throughout the story we see at the same time the submissiveness, the gentleness, the humility of Ruth, and at the same time such courage and assertiveness and boldness. That's Ruth. She says to him, marry me. And we know from the story that Ruth is asking for more than marriage. Here's a quote from A Loving Life. By calling Boaz to be a redeemer, to bear a child that would be Naomi's heir, Ruth is still making her own needs secondary to Naomi's. Again, she's putting her own honor on the line to do so. Love takes risks but all the while maintaining godly character. We see the plan of Naomi and how risky it was. We see the pronouncement of Ruth here and how risky that was. But we see in Boaz's response, as he praises the character of Ruth, as he comes up with a plan moving forward, how both of them maintained godly character in verses 10 through 13. First, let's look at the praise from Boaz to Ruth. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Boaz breaks the tension and again blesses Ruth, prays over Ruth, says her kindness, there's the word again for for the word hesed, this unconditional, loyal, faithful love that she continues to show for Naomi is coming forth all the more now in her willingness to continue on, continue the line of Naomi's son and of her deceased husband. With Boaz's praise of Naomi, of calling out her godly character, he's reminding her of the options because of her character that she would have had. And yet she chooses him knowing, because of the age gap, she would probably be a widow again. She says to, he says to her, the whole town knows that you are a worthy woman. A woman of noble character. I did a spoiler alert last week because it's just so good. This phrase, noble character, woman of noble character, it's used three times in the Old Testament. Once in Proverbs 12, once in Proverbs 31 to talk about the, the godly woman the ideal godly woman in Proverbs 31, and then here in Ruth, speaking about Ruth. And the Hebrew canon, they said it the same books, Genesis through Malachi, same books we have that Protestants believe is the Old Testament. But they organized it a bit differently. They put the book of Ruth right after the book of Proverbs, as if to say, you look at Proverbs 31, the woman of noble character, you want to see an example? Here she is, Ruth, a woman of noble character. So how does Boaz respond? Well, he gladly accepts. And we see his plan in verses 12 through 13. He says, and now it's true that I'm a redeemer, yet there's a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him. But if he's not willing to redeem you, 
then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So Boaz had already thought about wanting to marry Ruth. He had already looked into the legal aspects if it were to happen. And he knows that there's one person who's a closer relative of Naomi that could redeem Naomi's land and marry Ruth. And he has to check to make sure first that the other one doesn't want to redeem Naomi. Notice Boaz doesn't say, yes, you care about me, I care about you, this has to be right. Love trumps all. No matter what, we're in it together until the end. You and me, because we've decided right now. He doesn't do that. This idea of falling in love, like we hear about, as if there's no control over it, as if there's no choices in it, as if we're just helpless to follow this person because we both care for each other in the moment, is not what we see here. We see the the planning. We see the thinking. We see the intentionality. We see the time of working through what needs to happen. Ruth had spent not a ton of time, three to four months, though, of getting to know Boaz. Naomi had known Boaz beforehand. They had thought through the implications of it. And they were to see if they could, indeed, go through with the marriage. We can think. We can plan. We can take time. We don't helplessly fall into relationships. I like how in Miller's commentary he points out that in some of the the Disney movies that we love, the amount of time that the princess and the prince would spend talking before they got married. (laughs) Do you have any guesses with Cinderella how long the princess and the prince talked before they got married? This is, any any guesses? (laughs) 45. I don't think they talked at all. Well, apparently it's 10 seconds. (laughs) 10 (laughs) seconds of conversation before they got married. A little bit more in Sleeping Beauty, they talked for half a minute, 30 seconds before they got married. But, right, the, the reality is, right, it takes time. It takes consideration. It takes getting advice from others and all of those things. Boaz was not willing to set aside his primary relationship with God and following him. He didn't make Ruth into an idol. He didn't make romant, romanticism and all of that into an idol. He didn't put his feelings for her above God. And then he says to her in closing in verse 13, lie down until the morning. So Ruth had made her intentions very clear of why she was there. Marry me. Redeem me. Now Boaz makes his intentions clear what what is going to happen for the rest of the night when he says, lie down until the morning. He very specifically uses a non-sexual term in a very sexually charged atmosphere and environment they were in. He says, lie down. It's the same word that Ruth used when she committed to Naomi saying, where you lodge, same phrase, same word, where you lodge, where you lie down, I will lie down. He removes the ambiguity there as well. And they lay there for the rest of the night. (laughs) We'll see how the story continues next week. But we see here how love takes risks. All the while, true love maintains godly character. In this example, in this situation, they were both able to take a risk while maintaining following the Lord, maintaining godly character. Throughout the story, we see risks taken from a place of love. And God takes risks for us as well, with a plan, from a place of love. Jesus will have 
a holy, spotless bride. But for that to happen, he had to act. He had to take risks. He had to come here. He had to take on the stains and the sins and the spots of his bride, all the while maintaining godly character the whole time. Jesus, who never sinned, died for the sins of the world, including ours, to make us his, so that he could be the just and the justifier of all those who have faith in him. He maintains justice. He maintains purity. He maintains holiness while removing it from his people. And we trust and believe in him and his mercy and know that one day we'll be at that marriage feast, not because of us, not because of earning it, not because of deserving it, but we continue on the journey of becoming more like him until we get to that marriage feast because Jesus paid it all. He paid the bride price. He covered us all the while maintaining his perfection. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for helping us to understand the story. Lord, even the places that are harder to wrap our minds around. God, thank you for this true story of Ruth and of Boaz, who over and over again showed us what real love looks like. God, your love is generous. Your love endures with us. Your love is courageous. Your love takes risks. Thank you, God, for what you've done to make us yours. Thank you for the intentionality behind it, all the planning. From before time began, the lamb was slain. And God, thank you that we get to look forward, no matter what stage of life we're in, no matter what we're going through, if things are going really well in our single life or in marriage or if things are just awful. Either way, we are all waiting for you. You are the love we've been looking for our whole life. Would you remind us of that, Lord? Would you help us to follow you as you make us more and more like Jesus as we look forward to that day? God's people said. <laughs>